You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Hey, this is Deep Tran, writer at American Theater Magazine. And I'm Jose Solis, a freelance theater critic. And we're your token theater friends, people who see way too much theater and are usually the only people of color in the room, so we can only talk about it with each other. And, and our other white friends, who, who we'd like, but talking with, about it with Jose is a lot more fun. <laughs> Just kidding, guys, or am I? You're not. <laughs> uh, we have a really fun show for you today. We're talking about plays. All plays, all the time. Which plays are we talking about? The Lifespan of Effect, running on Broadway at Studio 54, Fireflies by Donier Love at Atlantic Theatre Company, and Good Grief by Ngozi Anyao at the Vineyard Theatre. And then we have an interview with Rebecca Naomi Jones, the star of of Oklahoma, question mark or exclamation point, or mm-hmm. both, at St. Anne's Warehouse. Daniel Fish's amazing, reimagined, sexy version of the Rodgers and Hammerstein classic. Yeah, that was fun. And then at the end of the, end of the show, Jose and I will be riffing off on solo shows. We will not be performing a solo show for you, but we'll tell you like what 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 we like in a solo show and how sometimes some can be better than than others so stay tuned for that as well uh to start off let's talk about daniel radcliffe doing an american accent isn't he always doing american accents recently he did that show at the public or did he have a british accent for that i didn't see that show at the public but like for his other stage stuff he did his sweet smell of success is that what it's called no sweet smell oh yeah no what's it called no uh Oh, wait, how, no, how does it sit in business? How does it sit yeah. in business? Oh, yeah, he did have an American accent. So, yeah, it's getting better. He's currently starring on Broadway in Lifespan of a Fact. What is the show about and who's, and who's doing it, Jose? Tell the us more. The show is by playwright John Dagara, and it's based on a book by Jim Fingal. And it tells the story of a very, very, very driven fact checker played by Daniel Radcliffe who gets his huge first assignment at a magazine and his editor played by Cherry Jones tells him to really check that everything in the story is true. The problem is that the writer played by Bobby Cannavale tends to like embellishing things. So we have this dynamic between, you know, should the should things that get published be a hundred percent factual or can good writers get away with a little bit of embellishment yeah how do you feel about that well it's a very intelligentsia conversation i have to say because it's all a question of definition i remember we had the same debate a few years ago do you remember the mike daisy scandal during this American life where Mike Daisy did his piece, The Agony and, Ex- and the Ecstasy of Steve Jobs, about his travels to China, to Apple factories, and he did it on This American Life, this theater piece, and he didn't preface at the beginning that he had embellished some facts. He presented it 
without a disclaimer. People people assumed it was completely factual. And then it came out that he embellished some facts and it was awkward for everyone involved. And so it's a question of like, it's a question that literary people just love to debate, which is like, what is nonfiction? And is there like a part of nonfiction where you can just embellish a little bit? And if I'm a nonfiction writer and I'm doing a journalistic piece, like, can I still have, it's like, do I still have to say everything truthfully or can I like rearrange some things so that it sounds better? Like, which was a great little, you know, debate among like really smart you know, artsy people a few years ago, and I don't really know if we should be having it right now. Yeah, because you're right, because I kept thinking, you know, the dilemma is extremely timely, especially with, you know, he who shall not be named attacking, quote-unquote, fake news constantly. But I feel that the dilemma in the lifespan of a fact could have perfectly been solved if the editor just said, we are going to call this a fiction piece, a fiction essay. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I didn't get why they were fighting so hard to make it, to pretend it was nonfiction. Well, I understand they were fighting so hard because this was based on a true story. Like, these are all real people. And Harper's actually commissioned that real life essay. And then they pulled it because they found out, oh, this dude embellished some facts. We can't pu- publish it in Harper's Magazine, a journalistic entity. And so they pulled it. And, and there, it, it was a debate like five years ago. But I don't think it's the conversation now. I think you're right, Jose. Like we've gone past that conversation to a conversation about what what is like empirical truth versus like emotional truth, which th- this play doesn't talk about, but that could be a good topic to discuss in some future show. People. Completely. And I, I loved what the play does in mm-hmm. making people have conversations. I was actually reading a book Right after, uh, right after going to the play, I was, I'm reading a book. Well, I was reading, I finished it already. I'm reading a book by, uh, American essayist Eula Biss. Mm-hmm. And she's one of the most talented essays that I've ran across in my whole life. And I was reading a story that she wrote about her time in Mexico. And she was describing a song called, uh, Cucuru Cucu Paloma, which is one of the most famous Mexican songs of all time. And in her essay, she says, the song was a folk song with no known author. And I was like, hold on, Eula. This song has an author. And I know that because, you know, it's one of the most famous songs in, like, the the entire Mm -hmm. Spanish language. Mm -hmm. However, I could totally see what her, maybe out of ignorance back then, or maybe because she was trying to embellish, I could see what pretending that this song was, you know, an ancient folk song added to the piece. And I was so, oh God, I was like in such a conflict with myself. I was like, do I want to like burn this essay right now? Cause it's garbage. Or do I just give in to what she's doing with language? And I think it speaks a lot also about that something that doesn't come across in the play at all is how people are reading these things, how people are receiving these things. And I think mm-hmm. another, you know, huge, huge white elephant in the room of lifespan of effect is that we don't have educated audiences. People just read headlines and just go with the headline and take it as fact. Yeah, well, people don't fact check. And I think what the time today is teaching us is if you don't fact check, if you don't independently confirm things yourself then that is how you can scare 
release propaganda and scare people. And so the question of like, is our facts relevant? It's not a relevant, it's an irrelevant question. But I feel like I'm getting bogged down by like whether or not I agree with the premise of the play. Like it's so hard these days for me to watch stuff like this and where it's trying to be political, but then it doesn't, but then the questions it asks is not valuable. <laughs> Do you like this play on like a storytelling craft level? Oh yeah, absolutely. And the yeah. acting is fantastic. Cherry Jones, who's mm-hmm. always magnificent on stage, is wonderful. Although I did have another problem with her. Not with her specifically, but with her character. And it's like, what kind of editor runs her entire business off of an iPad? I that was is like, not responsible. Yeah, like, I mean, the characters themselves are not necessarily likable, but all the actors are doing incredible work. Bobby Cannavale was so good mm-hmm. as the, you know, the asshole author who wants his piece to be basically full of lies. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's full of lies. I think it's more like that question of, you know, like life is inherently chaotic. And so an artist's job is to make sense out of the chaos. And some artists like or novelists like to rearrange the facts. They like to rearrange things to make it seem like there is a message or a theme. Like that's just what art does. And that's I think that's what Bobby Carnavale's character was talking about. And I think like the debate with Daniel Radcliffe's character... I feel like there's a lack of clarity on what it is they were arguing about because there are so many different strands in there and none of it cohered to anything that was emotionally resonant. Well, I mean, I was I was very invested in the 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 whole thing. I mean, we're writers. Like, weren't yeah, you like a sure. little bit invested in it? I was, but it was because of my own bias. Like, I was invested in it because I'm a journalist, and I'm just like, yeah. If you're gonna if you're publishing in a journalistic institution, you cannot make shit up. No, definitely not. But just, I mean, like the, the play itself could have been solved if Bobby Cannavale's character had just grabbed his piece and gone to a different publication and yeah. published it as and fiction. And in real life, that's what happened. That is what happened. But I really do, it, it's a fine, it's an okay play, which is what we're basically saying. It's fine. It's fine. But I, it's a really great production though. I really enjoyed it. I would, I really yeah. enjoyed it. Like I wouldn't call it fine. I, I really, fine. I really enjoyed it. It's one of those things where the play is, uh, is the play script itself is and for me, but Cherry Jones's performance, cause there is this moment where she, ba- where Daniel Radcliffe is basically like, Oh, why do you care? Why do you care so much? Like, did you have a kid who died or something? And she's like, why do I have to relate to it? Like, I'm a human being. I should be able to relate to this and shut the fuck up. Basically paraphrasing. Like she's fantastic. I wish she was my editor that I, would we would have such a great time together yeah i, I think that uh, director lee silverman oh is, yeah is this I her broadway her debut de- no no she's done it before she did violet she did right. she was she's nominated a, for violet yeah, yeah she's so good she is fantastic and i like i want to think that she was the one who highlights how cherry jones's character emily is also caught in some sort of limbo she's having to be like a mom figure to this yeah. two brats yeah and then she and then she's like i don't i am not your mother that's what i think that that's what she says which is yeah. so awesome but she's also like i don't know like i love how you know like probably because of cherry jones's talent and also because of lee silverman's director i mean direction she embodies so much that isn't in the play necessarily and i i mm-hmm. kept thinking wow like this woman probably has been dealing with male assholes her entire life and she's just trying to keep this position of power and she keeps saying all i want to do is retire and have this great piece in my publication and we should all treat women in journalism much better because yeah. god knows men are 
horrible. Yeah. And I think she was her best developed out of all of them. I don't know. The male characters were like just a collection of ticks and polemics. Were you as distracted as I was by Daniel Radcliffe's like bulging like vein on his right arm during the entire play? Dude, how close were you sitting? I was like on the third row. I was not that close. But it was like, it was Good just like... Good for you. It was just like there. And I was like, is he going to have like an aneurysm or something? His vein was like... In my eye. Dude, and his character was just like, was just like a collection of nervous ticks, which kind of was kind of annoying after a while. Yeah, he got on my nerves. Yeah. And even if I don't necessarily think that he's done enough character work, but he has like a really appealing energy on stage. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, that, youth, it's that youthful glow of his. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it was fine. It was fine. So, let us know what you think. Did you think it was mediocre, or did you actually really like it? Well, who's wrong here? Uh, Lifespan of Fact is playing until January 13th, 2019. Tickets go from 59 to $119. And that's at Studio 54. All right. Uh, our next show is Good Grief. Uh, it's currently playing at the Vineyard Theater off-Broadway it's by Ngozi Anyawu, and it and she and she wrote it and also starred in it, which and she is a fantastic actor. But anyway, I'm spoiling. I'm getting ahead of myself. So it's about a a young woman named Nkachi, and she is remembering her close friend slash childhood sweetheart slash the boy who got away, who dies very young and she's grieving and me remembering the moments they had together and the things that she couldn't say and yeah and it's really beautiful it's very sad it's very sad it, it is so funny like you know jose and i saw the show together but right beforehand i had went and gone to see a star is born and I think this play shares a similar thematic strand in that it's about the things that you didn't say to the person you loved before they died. Oh, that's so romantic. I, yeah, right? <laughs> so if I die, Jose, just know you're my boo. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Are you sick? really emotional right now god feel your emotion it's just a really good exploration of like this of the way memory works and how like whenever you look back on the things that happened like you played the thing you wish that ha that had happened but it didn't actually happen and then reality ends up being really disappointing and that is why you're reliving it over and over again because you think oh if you can just think about it more then maybe you'll find an answer to why this to why you couldn't do the thing that you wanted to do or why this horrible thing happened now there's a deep i know right <laughs> <laughs> it was so exciting to see because uh, uh, Nkechi is also Nigerian-American. It was yeah. so exciting to see a play like this led by a young woman of color. Mm -hmm. And as always, our usual complaint is, I just wish that theater had been full of young people of color rather mm -hmm. than the same old, usual, old, white subscribers. But that audience is pretty diverse. I, I, I saw, Yeah, I saw a couple of faces of color. I mean, it, a little bit more than the average. You know, the average is pretty... Blech. Sad, yeah, yeah. But that play is like kind of the equivalent of all those YA 
novels and YA mm -hmm. adaptations, mm -hmm. you know, that get turned into movies. And we need to see this story in particular. Like, I would love it if they turn it into a movie. Yeah, it was one of those things where I could have, like, lived in it a little bit more. Because, yes, the main character is Nigerian-American. The thing is, like, it's not driven by the fact that she's Nigerian-American. They just, they mention it because it's just a fact of the reality of that character and the way that, you know, the and why, like, she deals with grief the way she does and why her parents disapprove of the way she does it. But it doesn't, it's, it's, not, it's not about race. No, it's not. But it adds, you know, yeah, her being like Nigerian-American adds such beautiful texture mm -hmm. and depth to the show. You know, like, rather mm -hmm. than seeing yet another thing about, like, a young white woman coming of age and going to the prom and all of that. Yeah. We have such beautiful scenes in which we get to see her, you know, engage with her parents who are Nigerian immigrants. And we get to see, you know, what comfort food she wants when she's sad or how masculinity is so different in Nigerian American I mean Nigerian culture mm -hmm. than it is in American culture yeah. and it's not about race but it you know her being non-white adds so much to the play and I really loved like it, I mean it, it's a one set thing and it's off Broadway but I just love like the way they played with light and how And how like a certain like at certain points like it just lights up like stars or it lights up to like focus your attention onto something that's happening. And so they they did so much by to designate like different times and spaces with like very little materials. So that was lovely. Yeah, I feel like this play is a perfect companion piece to Once on This Island, which is similarly about except that one's like super tragic and it has some problems. But anyway, mm -hmm. they're great companion pieces because they're both about young women of color owning their stories and being the narrator of their own stories. And that's what we get at the end of Good Grief, where we see her, you know, like like that Carrie Fisher quote. Take your broken heart and turn it into art. Yeah, it's true. Well, is it also because it's both things are about young, dark-skinned girls in love with light-skinned boys? No. Because they, they they mention that in the play, too. Like, Oh, they do that? No, yeah, no, but no. The, the I one was that Inkechi's in love with MJ is, I think he's, he's ethnically ambiguous. Oh, well, no, that was not what I, what I was thinking, but yet another parallel. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so exciting that young people have, if they can afford it, if they yeah, can afford it, have options like this, which you know, like lift them up rather than be about oppression and mm -hmm. all the horrible things going on in the world. It's like you know, like young people of color own up your stories and be your own narrators and be your own gods, which is what this play tells. Yeah, and you can like, and we can like fall in love and shoot the shit with our siblings and comf and you know have conflict with our parents. It isn't just about like, oh my god, you're so traditional and I'm so <laughs> you know modern and stuff. Oh, and uh, I just want to say, uh, Ian Quinlan, who plays MJ, he takes his shirt off in this play, and it's nice. <laughs> Now that's the deep I know again. <laughs> Good Grief is playing until November 18th. Tickets are $45 to $100. And also, I had the same problem when I was trying to see um, Gloria by Brian Jacob Jenkins a few years ago, and I missed the press night, so I was trying to buy my own ticket. V Vineyard Theater, can you please have a young person discount? That would yes. be real helpful. Especially because a lot of the productions they're doing are so, you know, young people oriented. Yeah! 
it's like it's about young people's stories and so and and they're modern and fun so can you just like you know discount tickets please that would be awesome or tell us how to get some discount tickets yes okay thanks Okay, our final show for today is Fireflies by Donia Love at Atlantic Theater Company. And Fireflies is set somewhere in the Jim Crow South where we meet Olivia, who has realized she has learned that she's pregnant and she's having problems because she keeps thinking, how am I going to bring a person of color into this world that's so fucking horrendous? She comes to this conclusion because recently, you know, the church in Alabama where four little girls were killed in a church, which sounds like something that happened over the weekend, right? You know, like people of color are constantly under attack in the time of the play, which is the 60s. And they're in the midst of the civil rights movement. And Olivia's husband, Charles, is part of the movement and he's this like charismatic leader trying to bring people you know raise people's consciousness but he's also he has his own demons like basically Mm -hmm. he's just he's a dude and he cheats on her and he's not the best husband so most of the show has olivia by herself in her kitchen trying to figure out should i keep this baby should i not and it was so sad yeah I don't know. There's one of those things where I think I wanted to like it more than I actually did. Yeah, same. I respected it more than than I than I than I loved it. And this is the second part in Donia Love's trilogy that started with Sugar in Our Wounds, which I absolutely loved, which mm-hmm. played earlier this year in Manhattan Theater Club. And he's exploring the ways in which black people in America have dealt with love and relationships. And and, and queerness, right? Like queer black people in yes. America. Yes. Because, I mean, are we, should we spoil the... No. No? Okay, no. fine. <laughs> there is a queer element to this play that we will not spoil for you, but I don't think it was developed well enough. I wonder if that's also part of who the character is and whether the character thinks they're allowed to feel those feelings. Yeah, but I feel like most of the conflict was about, like, should I have this baby? I feel like there should have been an equal about like equal time or monologue devoted to I am feeling these feelings and I don't really understand them. I kind of read that as, you know, this person just giving up because they knew that that option that they were feeling was not even an option back then. I mean, black people back then had no rights. So yeah, I think this character was just thinking about that and being like, well, there's really nothing I can do about that. So I won't even think about it. Since we both had mixed feelings about it, I kind of wanted to go a little bit deeper into why for you. I just thought it was very respectful. It was very, it was just, it was just okay. It was, everything was very monotone in a way. Like everything was played in the same range. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I was interested in the characters, but I can't necessarily say that I wanted to learn more about them. Um, I feel that it was kind of repetitive. I feel that I kind of, I kind of knew where it was headed the second it started, and there was really no tension for me except, you know, like it, there was so much. A lot of stuff happened, though. It's like a lot of dramatic stuff happened, and it's so interesting when you, the player is putting so much conflict on stage, but you, as the audience, don't feel drawn into it. Yeah, I, I think I was also kind of comparing it in my 
head to sugar, which was such an emotional ride. And that one just like, you know, like there were people weeping mm-hmm. at the theater. And this one is way more restrained. And I wonder if that came from Sahima Lee's direction or the script itself. Because there's also like those elements of, you know, like the Olivia keeps talking about fire in the sky and fireflies. And I don't feel yeah. that magical aspect of the play gets explored enough. Yeah, the th- I, I, I wasn't entirely sure like how how they wanted to play it off because like the big metaphor like Olivia has this thing where like she gets these flashes of she feels like the sky is exploding and she gets like these these headaches or these pangs of something and I. And I know that it is a metaphor for just the general shit fuckery that was happening during that time, but I I wasn't entirely sure that it was necessary for them for that character to actually internalize a metaphor inside her own body. I don't know what that added. To yeah, it. same. Something that I really want to mention though is there's such sizzling chemistry between oh, yeah. Chris Davis and Demanda Watt, Demanda Weiss. Yeah. I'm sorry, and I love this because you know traditionally media like popular media and like popular culture often denies scenes of like sexiness between black people like they're we're always just seeing black bodies like suffering mm-hmm. or undergoing like horrendous things and if you think about it like there's not even that many movies or tv shows where mm-hmm. we see black people just like you know like going at it or, like just like being in love and like wanting desiring each other and this play was very sexy. It was very sexy, which is why, like, when the queer revelation came up, I was like, wait, what? I did not read that as them not being attracted to each other because one, because someone had, like, a secret. Well, you can be into both sexes. If they were, if there is desire for all sides, then, like, why, then why a conflict with the pregnancy? You know, why the indecision? Because it's I about, read it as, huh? Because it's about bringing another person into a world, and if the baby is a boy, he's fucked. If the baby is a girl, she's fucked. I think more than the desire mm-hmm. of the character, it was more about just like, seriously, like, my child's gonna go through all this bullshit once yeah, they arrive. true. It's a valid question. It is a valid question. I mean, if I were a parent or if I wanted to be a parent, I would probably think the same questions that Olivia's asking herself. Like, do I really want a child to come? And like, in her case, like, probably, I mean, she's probably like... Probably not. She's like a Christian, right? Yeah. And her values were probably like... she's The fact that she's even thinking about abortion in itself is so fascinating. Because, again, I don't think we've seen enough stories also about women of color during this era even having those thoughts. Mm-hmm. Or women of color during this era in general. Oh, yeah, in general. Yeah. I mean, we've seen things like the help. And, like, it's when we see black women in the 60s, they're always maids. Yeah, or or they're always, like, the supportive wife to whatever man is going, is is preaching. Yeah, Yeah, literally. Like, like, no, women of color were, like, one of the pioneers of the civil rights movement. So, at least this play does that. And I really do love the design element of it. Like I love that set and oh, the house, yeah, the house, and with the bat, the backdrop. It like it gave it this epicness. I think I think it just needs. I think it needs another draft. Yeah, I'm curious to see what the third part of the yeah. trilogy is, though. It's probably going to be like modern times, right? Because it's on like civil 
warp slavery era mm-hmm. and now the 60s and probably like a post you know like marriage equality thing right yeah perhaps well it's gonna be exciting I yeah think. i mean and I, I've never seen... I didn't see Sugar in Our Wounds, and so I'm really curious about Don, Danya's other plays Yeah, this and, to play see, right, and to see what else he does. This playwright has a voice that's really worth keep track on. Mm-hmm. Okay, and... Interview. Firefly... Oh, Fireflies is... Do, 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 uh, Fireflies is playing until November 11th, and tickets are 25 to $85. And do you want to wrap up the interview? Oh, what a beautiful interview. Oh, what a beautiful day. <laughs> yeah, I think by now everyone knows how much we love Oklahoma. So just enjoy the interview because Rebecca is just such a delight. Yeah, and you, you may have seen Rebecca in Passing Strange, American Idiot, and uh, the musical version of As You Like It last year in Shakespeare in the Park. She, she's amazing. This interview is amazing. Oklahoma's amazing. Whatever. Just, yeah, go listen to the interview. Bye. <laughs> Why do they think up stories that link my name with yours? Why do the neighbors gossip all day behind their doors? I know a way to prove what they say is quite untrue. Here is the gist, a practical list of don'ts for you. And we're here at St. Anne's Warehouse speaking to Rebecca Naomi Jones of Oklahoma, exclamation point. Or maybe question mark? (laughs) Oklahoma, question mark? It's it's definitely exclamation point, but um, I could see how the question mark would be implied. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, for those who haven't seen the show yet, like this is a a reimagined Oklahoma. So can you tell us a little bit about the concept? Yeah. I mean, you know, what's, what's... really special about this Oklahoma, I think, is that it's not reimagined in the in the way of um, lines have been changed or um, major things have been cut or rearranged uh, or songs are different. It's the same script. It's just uh, Daniel's direction is such that we speak the lines in a naturalistic way to each other and say them in a way that... Um, people don't usually say them when producing this musical mm-hmm. um, so that you can really hear the lines for, for a lot of people for the first time mm-hmm. such that people do see the show and then think oh uh, how, how much of this was changed from the original because they're hearing a lot of the text for the first time which happens to be uh, quite dark in a lot of places and, um, and complicated these characters are complicated and not uh, perfect they're not perfect people and um and so I think that's the thing that's really, really special about this production. And then otherwise, um, I think the way it's staged is really special too, which is uh, such that we're all in this wooden box together that feels kind of like a community center in mm-hmm. a small mm-hmm. town. Um, and we all get fed chili. And everybody gets fed chili. And and um, most of us actors are on stage for most of the time. Um, it's very rare. There are some scenes that are that are two people, two or three people, but most of the time we're all on stage and, and sitting there. It's really not like overstaged. It's not, there's not a lot that's being sort of tossed at you in order to, um, distract from the text, Mm. which is really cool. And I think that also offers a strange, 
quality and and something new to chew on when you're watching scenes that are traditionally played and were written to be two person scenes and you're realizing that one of the people in said scene is talking about an act uh, talking about a character who happens to be mm-hmm. sitting there right right yeah. next to them um, so I think that you know Daniel's take on this play is just um, one that wants to take a closer look for you as, a, as an artist and as a performer you know you get the opportunity for instance to do passing strange mm-hmm. where you get to create the character with two What's that different, you know, what's the difference, I'm sorry, when you get to do something like that and then you get to play Laurie, who so many people all over the world feel they know every bit of her? Yeah, that's a great question, Um, especially because I usually don't have any interest in in, um, stepping into the shoes of a role that's been played by a lot of people, Uh, only because, not even for, for like a ego reason more just because mm-hmm. I I have anxiety about it like well somebody's already done the ultimate version of this mm-hmm. so I'm just going to go in there and think about all of my shortcomings and all of the ways that I'm not you know filling this role the way this other person did that is iconic that other people are thinking about that you know people on the internet are going <laughs> to be comparing me to <laughs> I just you know so that's just not interesting to me plus I really love to create um you know i don't think of myself as like a as a robot who says lines i'd really Mm -hmm. love to to create with the collaborators who are on the piece and the other actors and and um and so to me that's that's the most fun um is being in rehearsal and figuring out who these characters are together and um but something that's been so great about this process is that it does feel like we're creating this version of it from scratch. It does mm-hmm. feel like that because I know that when I first read the script, I was like, I don't understand. Cause I, I knew that they had done this production previously and that it had been received so well. And I was like, I, I don't from just from looking at the text, you don't get it what we're going to be doing. And then mm-hmm. it sort of starts to bleed into your consciousness. And, um, it's been really special. Um, but I think it's also really cool to do this version of it, and especially a character. I've had friends who, who have come many nights who have been like, I played Laurie in high school. <laughs> um, but it's so great because it's not like we're not doing that version. It doesn't feel mm-hmm. like, I don't feel that terror of like, did you think I was okay? You know, it feels more like what a cool thing we're doing with this text, right? You know. What was your first exposure to Oklahoma, and did this version like redefine like what you think it could be? Yeah, for sure. I was never. Um, I mean, it was funny in my auditions. I remember Daniel being like, "I need you to divorce your brain of the Oklahoma you know," and I was like, <laughs> "I don't know Oklahoma." <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing the version with Patrick Wilson in it and loving it, and my mom and I um, really loving it. But it didn't have a deep impact on me. I remember. Oh, what a beautiful morning! And I remember yeah. how gorgeous it was and how well done it was. Mm-hmm. But I didn't walk out of there like, "That's what I'm gonna do." You know, the way I was when I saw like Rent or something. You know, <laughs> um, but I was older too when I saw Rent, so that's a mm-hmm. different thing too. I mean, I, I think I saw some classical musicals and also felt that way. But, um, but it didn't have a huge impact on me, even though I remember really liking it. And then um, that's 
kind of it. And I just, you know, it's unfortunate because you, you, you get pigeonholed in this business and then you sort of pigeonhole yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, I think for a long time, people casting people thought of me as like, Oh, she's just edgy. She doesn't do anything other than edgy, you know? (laughs) And so I sort of decided that that was true, even though I'd gone to conservatory for classical theater training and mm-hmm. you can sing opera so yeah i mean but i also just you know could do shakespeare or, or mm-hmm. you know moliere whatever whatever mm-hmm. but um it took a while but finally all of that is moving around which is really exciting but um but all of that aside when i saw the audition come through for my agents um this I was like Oklahoma I'm not gonna audition for nobody's gonna cast me in Oklahoma come on and then I saw that it was happening at St. Anne's and I was like oh this is gonna be something else (laughs) okay okay and so that was kind of my first exposure to it I was like um let me look at this this movie I looked at Mm -hmm. some of the movie online and I was like that's definitely not how I'm gonna sing that so (laughs) not you know not because that's not great it's more just like that's that's not real for me Mm -hmm. so when was that first time for you where you went to the theater and you said, oh my God, that's me on stage? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I have some really good early memories of theater with my parents. I think, well, I was. I will say that I was in the opera as a little girl. I mm. was in the opera. So, <laughs> so I, well, the opera was actually so much more diversely cast than theater was at back then, I think. You know, just because of vocal types, you know, they, they threw whoever in that was um, appropriate. But I also did, I was in operas like Porgy and Bess, so that, that was really mm-hmm. exciting. But um, I remember seeing Serafina, oh. um, which, oh gosh, I wish I remembered more about it, but it was, a, it was a musical. And I just, I remember seeing it with my parents and flipping out over it. The voices were so joyous and... Um, and the cast was full of brown-skinned people, and I just remember being like, "What is this?" And I'm half black and half white, and and but my my I grew up here in New York, and my parents were just so good at exposing me to all of the diverse versions of art that there were to to be seen here, dance and and visual art and all of that. So. Mm-hmm. Right, and your dad's um, a vocal coach, so yeah, he sure. was. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was a huge part of my life was hearing all kinds of singers all the time. But yeah, Serafina, I remember there was something I, I wish I could remember it now. But for years, my mom and I used to sing one part of it yeah. because it was like it had affected us so deeply. Mm-hmm. Now that you've shown the industry that you could be a Rodgers and Hammerstein ingenue, mm-hmm. do you have any other classic musicals you'd want to do? Oof. Gosh, I don't know. Um, that's a good question. I always used to love... Um, I'm trying to think of like something that... It's so weird, you know, because growing up with those musicals, I loved them, but I never saw myself in right. them. So I never thought of them as goals, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Right. You know? Yeah. So I don't know. It's it's hard to say because I don't I don't know... I don't know. I almost did um, Anything Goes a couple of years back. I mean, that's mm-hmm. more jazzy. It's less, you know, um, legit. <laughs> um, but um, Son Foster got famous from it. So. She did. She did. <laughs> totally She's happened. awesome. 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I have to think on that when I get back to you. I used to also love, like, Annie, get your gun. I think I did that oh. at, like, three schools and summer camps. But those are, those are they're all a little, like, more belty <laughs> than, than operatic. I don't know. I'd have to think about that. When you were little, you loved Paula Abdul. I did. And I wonder if someone gave you, like, a whole lot of money and they were like, we want you to play Paula Abdul a show like what would you call the musical and which show would be like your 11 o'clock number <laughs> <laughs> that's an amazing question um i mean my instinct is to call it straight up but i feel like that's a cop-out i don't know i feel like i could come up with something like a little little more of like a deep cut but um, <laughs> straight up feels like you know The Paula, straight up, the Paula Abdul <laughs> And then, oh, the 11 o'clock number. I feel like, I mean, it's unfortunate because she doesn't really have those, she didn't really have those, like, big, ballady songs, but that cold-hearted snake music video just lays me out to this day. And so I just feel like it, that would have to be it, and it would have to be, mm -hmm. like, a fully staged like dancers like sexy writhing sweaty thing like it was in that video because that video i can still picture it it's just steeply ingrained <laughs> i'm buying a ticket to that tomorrow <laughs> rebecca thank you so much for joining us congratulations on the show yes, yeah thank you everyone see sexy oklahoma <laughs> <laughs> question mark exactly. in the slickest gig you ever see Lance. Chicks and ducks and geese better scurry When I take you out in the Surrey When I take you out in the Surrey With the fringe on top I like it when we agree, Jose. I don't like fighting. Why do you want to agree? Then huh? it's going to be so boring. I know, but then when you agree with me, then I feel like I'm not crazy. And then when you, when you don't agree with me, it's like, wait a minute. I don't know you at all. Well, you don't have to agree with me. It's, otherwise, life would be so boring if everyone agreed with me. I know, but you, I don't like conflict. But do you want me to... <laughs> do you want to be like Fox News? I know. <laughs> like, this chair is black. <laughs> And then he'll be like, okay, sure, it's black. And then, no, like... The chair is actually bright orange, yeah. by the way. Agreement is really boring, I think. No, agreement is very boring. I know people like it when we don't agree, but it's just, it's it's so stressful. Why? You shouldn't be stressed. The Defending your position is a very stressful thing. Well, you don't have to defend it. Like, you don't have to agree with me, but it doesn't mean that you're right and... I'm that, wrong exactly. or that I'm right and you're wrong. It just means that we have different opinions. Yeah. Okay. And that is the key to a good conversation, everybody. Yeah. We're not fighting. No one's throwing stuff at each other. Exactly. Because yeah. we still got to see each other at the theater. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So for today's 11 o'clock number where we talk about stuff, random stuff, we're talking about solo shows because Mike Barbiglia's newest show is on Broadway and there's been a bunch of solo shows recently that we've seen that we that we've liked to varying degrees. Uh, 
Asif Manvi, yeah, like Asif Manvi's doing Sakina's restaurant off Broadway with Audible, the audiobook publisher. Um, what the Constitution means to me isn't a solo play, but it starts off that way and then it turns, you know, Nanette. So there are things happening in the genre that's very exciting, wouldn't you say? Well, the reason why I even wanted to talk about this because my first question was. Do you like one-person shows? And I have to say that when it comes to, you know, bias, every time I know that something's a one-person play, it's probably going to go to the bottom of my priorities mm -hmm. of what I want to see. I mm -hmm. yeah, don't same. connect to one-person shows usually. I kind of buy into the stereotype that most one-person shows are like actors who don't have a project and so they decide to write a thing to show off their skills. Kind of like Emma Stone and La La Land. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why no one showed up to her show in La La Land. Also because it was really bad. <laughs> yeah, although now that you bring up La La Land, I actually had forgotten that Jimmy Foley brought his show from Los Angeles to New York last winter where he played Emma Stone you know, in La La Land, and he was basically doing that show so long, Boulder City. And mm. that was hilarious. And I think my biggest issue with one-person shows are my least favorite ones are the ones where the performer plays different characters. Because I always feel they're, like, icky. Like, I don't want to see a white, pasty dude, you know, doing, like, a black or, like, a Middle Eastern or a Hispanic accent. That always just gives me like... Ugh. True, but at the same time, though, like Asif Manvi plays a few different characters in Sakina's restaurant. Did you think that was effective? I didn't... Let's just it's... say that play wasn't for me. I, I don't know. Like, every time that I see a man try to embody a woman, it's mm -hmm. just like... It's really... I don't know, like icky to me. I can't think of a better word. It's just, I don't know. There's something rubs me the really wrong way. Okay, yeah, because there's like, okay, so there are different types of one-person shows, I think. I mean, there's like the one-person shows where the it's kind of like the net, where you tell a story from beginning to end and you're just playing yourself and recollecting things. Or even better, like Hasan Minaj, who, who's one-person show Homecoming King is, is on Netflix, and it's amazing, but he basically plays himself and tells you stories, and there's some jokes in it. And, and, then, there's the other, and then there's the other side, which is the one-person show where you're, you're playing a bunch of different characters, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Depends on the actor and how well they embody the characters and the quality of the story that they're telling. Oh, totally. I, for instance, I loved Harry Clark uh, last season, Again, directed by Lee Silverman, who's just like a prodigy. So maybe mm -hmm. that had a lot to do with it. But I Billy really... Crudup did that, right? Yeah. He started it. He was so good. And what, did he... He... what kind of one-person show was it? It was kind of like the talented Mr. Ripley, where he was just like this sociopath, just telling like a That's... story about how he became rich. Mm -hmm. And he, more than embodying other characters, he was just like a really good storyteller. So he wouldn't like necessarily like, you know, mimic like a women's movement but he would just like slightly change his voice to let us know that he was playing a different character so we were just like listening to him so that i thought that worked like i didn't feel icky about that part of the show like i felt icky because the show was like oh god like harry clark was such a douchebag but <laughs> the play itself and the performance was just like magnificent and also 
that was the same case with uh, Girls and Boys, in which Carrie Mulligan also did, you know, she told a story about her life, about her character's life. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, there's something else that's always like really weird to me is like when they're pretending there's like other characters with them and they're like talking to people or just like who aren't there. And I'm always no, it's like, very artificial. Yeah. yeah. But in that one, even like Carrie Mulligan, she had children. Did you see that one? No. Carrie Mulligan had children and she kept talking to her ghost children, but there was a reason for that. And then when we find out, you know, when we find out what happened to this character's life, the ghost children suddenly make sense in a really like harrowing, like heartbreaking way. And by the way, both Harry Clark and Girls and Boys are available as audiobooks and Audible. And they are both... Um, so it's Sakina's Restaurant. Phenomenal. Yeah. Audible's doing such good work with the one-person show. Yeah, because I think it's it's the thing that lends itself best to being listened to. And Carrie Mulligan has the best voice yeah. in the world. But what do you think makes a good one-person show, though? I'm, it's, again, my bias. Like, I love one-person shows by female artists and by female mm-hmm. performers. I am usually so bored when it's just, like, a dude. Like, you know, Mike Birbiglia, the new one, like, I saw it last a couple of months ago, and I have to go see it on Broadway again. But uh, I did not enjoy it once, and I kept just, like, looking around, and, like, Anna Kendrick was sitting in front of me, and she was having the time of her life, and I was just like, this is some They're white people friends. nonsense, or... <laughs> I just didn't get the humor. But again, that's like totally my bias. Like I don't really get white male comedians and white male solo shows. I don't I don't get them. Like most things in performance, it's white male driven. So most white dudes just, you know, love to give you their opinions. But <laughs> but no, I, I think for me what makes a good one person show is whether an it's like it needs to not be self-indulgent like there needs to be a point to it other than let me show you my talent or let me tell you this story like it needs like it needs it's like a good play like it needs to have some it needs to be asking a greater question than you know oh i have an interesting family story i'm going to tell it to you why are you telling this to me yeah although the the whole like show off your talent thing sometimes kind of works because alan cummings one man Macbeth on Broadway was so insane and so brilliant. Did you see that one? Of course I did, but I don't really think that if it was just like some undergrad doing it, like it would be as effective. Oh no, no, God, yeah, no. It's like Alan Cumming is like he he can read from a phone book and it would be entertaining. So right, yeah, but that that that's just celebrity. But yeah, no, but no, but also like talent like he's really talented like there's celebrities that i wouldn't want to see would you want to see like kim kardashian do a one-person show kind of you know why <laughs> like i think if you have the talent and you can pull this off do it but otherwise yeah like ask yourself why am i doing this yeah like you know it's a good question of great drama why this play now and how is what is my audience going to take away from this experience like i think that's why i loved um homecoming king by hasan minaj because yes was talking about his life and but it was talking also talking talking about like what it's like to grow up as an immigrant with a traditional family and marrying outside of your race and being discriminated against and in a really funny way and so like the story had like more resonance resonances outside of just his life 
And I want to say to our listeners out there, if you can think of any shows that you think I might like, point me to them because I've honestly tried, you know, Louis C.K. and like all the Seinfeld stand-up comedy and like a lot of things. You know, I've... I've I think... Mm. Stand-up comedy, I feel, is also like a version of like a one-person show. So apologies yeah. to like any like comedy purists if I'm mistaken. But I've, you know, I've seen enough of these shows to know that male-driven stories aren't my thing. I don't find them compelling at all. But I'm willing to, you know, see stuff and listen to stuff. So if you can think of anything that you would like to recommend, hit us up on Twitter or find us somewhere and tell me what to see. Because I really want to get into them. Wait, so you um, do you think like stand-up shows and one-person shows are like the same thing? Because I, I think they're two, they're two different things. I mean, the shows that all the Netflix specials and like the HBO comedy specials that all these white male comedians do in a way, you know, like Mike, Mike Berbilia's show is a perfect example of that. I, I know you haven't seen the new one, but when I saw it, it's essentially a stand-up routine for like an hour. And oh, it's, that does not sound interesting. No. But it's going to Broadway. So that's the thing where you're like, is this a stand-up? show is this a one person show what's the difference so that's why i'm putting it out to our listeners is there a difference because i've googled this i've researched this and i've asked people and no one can really explain to me what the difference is necessarily because the lines are so blurry right well i think that's why nanette was seen as groundbreaking because it was basically a one person show it was a story it was a story of like why she's quitting comedy but it, and there were some jokes in it, but the jokes weren't the main event. The main event was the story. But in it my sold. Opinion. No, I, I agree. Yeah. But it sold as a stand-up comedy. Yeah, yeah. Show like even on Netflix, like it's under stand-up, right? That's true. So, God, what are labels, everyone? You know, just let's be. A, should you just be like lifespan a span of a fact and just not have labels and just let people do anything they want, Jose? No, then it would just be total like chaos. <laughs> so no. <laughs> Some labels are good. So, yeah, recommend me some shows, whether stand-up or one-person shows, and explain the difference to me if if you want. Okay, and that is it for our show. Thank you all for listening. And leave and tell you if you like what you've heard, please tell your friends about us. Leave, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps people find us. Uh, you can find out more about the things we talked about on our show page tokentheaterfriends.org com we have both yeah about both shit tokentheaterfriends.com or dot org we are official and if you want to watch us interview people and look and see what fun t-shirt jose is wearing next just subscribe to us on youtube uh, is there anything else, Jose, that you want to say to the people? <laughs> we are going to be doing Token Theater Friends Live at BroadwayCon the weekend of January 11th. So get your tickets. We don't know exactly what we're going to be doing Saturday or Sunday, but get your tickets for both days. BroadwayCon is fantastic. And dress up. If you want to dress up as Jose, he'll love you forever. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> no, please don't dress up as me. <laughs> get like the best beard you can find well i mean if you can pull off the beard i'll be impressed all right um thank you all for listening and remember theater is more fun when you take your friends bye bye bye